Scripture reading, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have, heard it, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, 
Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Thank you, Dan, and thank you, Jordan. You know, with the weather the way it's been the last week or so, it has a feel of Thanksgiving, even though it's a month away yet, you know. <laughs> but I was just thinking as Jordan was playing the piano this morning, how thankful I am for many things, you know, that God has done for us. But one of the things that I'm most thankful for is the gift of music. Amen. How God through music as a way of reaching our emotions, reaching our souls, like basically none other, depending on. Some people really aren't into music as others, but, but it certainly is one of the ways that God has blessed us. Um, this morning I'm going to be talking to you from Matthew chapter 5. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is three chapters of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a fairly lengthy sermon that Jesus gave that kind of went against a lot of what his people were doing at the time. In the sense that the leaders at the time, the Pharisees and so on, thought they were keeping the law perfectly. And they were keeping the letter of the law um, beyond what you could almost comprehend. But Jesus was trying to tell them, oh, there's so much more. The spirituality of the law, the principles of the law behind the rigid codes that you have go so much deeper. And you don't get it. You're not even close, you know. And um, this morning... I. I'm going to do something that I really hate to do. I apologize for it up front. Uh, I have spoken here probably five or six times in the last couple of years, and I have not done this before. But what I'm going to do today is probably read 95-plus percent of the sermon today. And it's coming from the book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. Some of these truths that are in here are so striking that I don't want to try to put it in my own words. Mrs. White says it so well. Um, everything I'm going to be reading this morning is from the chapter called The Spirituality of the Law. That's what I entitled the sermon today because it just is from that chapter. And um, before we get started, I, I want to thank those th this morning that uh, read the call to worship and the scripture reading, and I'm going to 
reread what was the call to worship this morning out of another translation called The Remedy. And I'm going to be reading from Matthew 5. Uh, the scripture reading started, I think, with verse 16. I'm going to start a couple verses before that in verse 14. So Matthew 5, 14. You are beacons of light in a world of darkness. A shiny city on a hill cannot be hidden, and the people don't hide a lantern, or don't light a lantern and hide it under a bucket. No, they display it prominently so that everyone receives the light. Be like that. Let your lives radiate the light of heavenly love and truth by the way you treat others, so that they may give thanks to your Father in heaven. And don't think that I have come to destroy the Old Testament Torah and prophets taught about by God and his methods. I have not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. Here's the simple truth. Heaven and earth would disappear if even the slightest change were made to God's design protocol for life, what you call the law. I am, here to, I am not here to destroy the law, but to accomplish everything it requires. Anyone who violates God's design law and teaches others to do so is out of harmony with heaven. But anyone who practices God's methods and teaches others to do so in harmony with the kingdom of heaven, I tell you plainly, if your characters are not renewed with righteousness surpassing that of the Pharisees and the lawyers, it simply will not be possible for you to enter the heavenly kingdom of love. From Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing it says, It was Christ who, among the thunder and flame, had proclaimed the law upon Mount Sinai. The glory of God, like devouring fire, rested upon the summit, and the mountain quaked at the presence of the Lord. The host of Israel, lying prostrate upon the earth, had listened in awe to the sacred precepts of the law. But what a contrast to the scene on the Mount of Beatitudes! Under the summer sky, with no sound to break the stillness but the song of birds, Jesus unfolded the principles of his kingdom. Yet he who spoke to the people that day in accents of love was opening to them the principles of the law proclaimed upon Sinai. When the law was given, Israel, degraded by long years of bondage in Egypt, had need to be impressed with the power and the majesty of God. And yet, he revealed himself to them no less as a God of love. It was to Moses that God revealed his glory in those wonderful words that we have treasured, found in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The law given upon Sinai was the enunciation of the principle of love, a revelation to earth of the law of heaven. It was ordained in the hand of a mediator, spoken through Moses, through whose power the hearts of men could be brought into harmony with its principles. But Israel had not perceived the spiritual nature of the law, and too often their professed obedience 
was but an observance of forms and ceremonies, rather than a surrender of the heart to the sovereignty of love. As Jesus and his character and work represented to men the holy, benevolent, paternal attributes of God and presented the worthlessness of their mere ceremony, ceremonial obedience, the Jewish leaders did not receive or understand his words. They thought that he dwelt too lightly upon the requirements of the law. And when he set before them the very truths that were the soul of their divinely appointed service, they, looking at the external, accused him of seeking to overthrow the law. The words of Christ, though calmly spoken, were uttered with an earnestness and power that stirred the hearts of the people. They listened for a repetition of the lifeless traditions and exactions of the rabbis, but in vain. And they were astonished at his teachings, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The Pharisees noted the vast difference between the manner of instruction, their manner of instruction, and that of Christ. They saw that the majesty and purity and beauty of the truth, with its deep and gentle influence, was taking a firm hold upon many minds. The Savior's divine tenderness drew the hearts of men to him, and the rabbis saw that by his teachings, the whole tenor of the instruction that they had given to the people was being set at naught. He was tearing down the partition wall that had been so flattering to their pride and exclusiveness, and they feared that if permitted, he would draw the people entirely away from them. Therefore, they followed him with determined hostility, hoping to find some occasion for bringing him into disfavor with the multitudes, and thus enabling the Sanhedrin to secure his condemnation, and his death. I want to pause just for a minute before I continue on here and just to say in general, I, I had just been reading from Thoughts of the Mount of Blessing over the last few weeks, and it was such a blessing to me. I've read it many times before in years past, and um, I, I usually read something from Mrs. White every morning along with scripture reading, and of all the things that I read of hers, this is one of my very, very favorites. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. Yeah. It is the creator of men, the lawgiver, who declares that it is not his purpose to set aside its precepts. Everything in nature, from the mode in the sunbeam to the worlds on high, um, is under law. And upon obedience to these laws, the order and the harmony of the natural world depend. So there are great principles of righteousness as well. To control the life of all intelligent beings, and upon conformity to these principles, the well-being of the universe depends. Before this earth was called into existence, God's law existed. Angels are governed by its principles. And in order for the earth to be in harmony with heaven, man also must obey the divine statutes. To man in Eden, Christ made known the precepts of the law. The mission of Christ on earth was not to destroy the law, but by his grace to bring man back to the obedience of its underlying precepts and principles. 
Speaking of the law, Jesus said, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Here he used the word fulfill in the same sense as when he declared to John the Baptist his purpose to to fulfill all righteousness. That is to fill up the measure of the law's requirement. To give an example of perfect conformity to the will of God. Jesus' mission was to magnify the law, to make it honorable. He was to show the spiritual nature of the law, to present its far-reaching principles, and to make plain its eternal obligation. The divine beauty of the character of Christ, of whom the noblest and most gentle among men are but a faint reflection, of whom Solomon, by the spirit of inspiration, wrote, He is the chiefest among ten thousands, yea, he is altogether lovely. And of whom David wrote, seeing him in prophetic vision, Thou art fairer than the children of men. Yes, Jesus, the express image of the Father's person, the effluence of his glory, the self-denying Redeemer, throughout his pilgrimage of love on earth, was a living representation of the character of the law of God. In his life, it is made manifest that the heaven-born love, Christ-like principles, underlie the laws of eternal rectitude. Because the law of the Lord is perfect and therefore changeless, it is impossible for sinful men in and of themselves to meet the standard of its requirement. And this was why Jesus had to come as our Redeemer. It was his mission, by making men partakers of the divine nature, to bring them into harmony with the principles of the law of heaven. The new covenant promise found in Hebrews 10.16 says, I will put my laws into their hearts, and into their minds I will write them. While the system of types which pointed to Christ as the Lamb of God that should take away the sin of the world was to pass away at his death, the principles of righteousness embodied in the Decalogue are as immutable as the eternal throne. Not one command has been annulled. Not one jot or tittle has been changed. Those principles that were made known to man in paradise as the great law of life will exist unchanged in paradise restored. When Edom shall bloom on earth again, God's law of love will be obeyed by all under the sun. Under the context of what is said in Matthew 5.19, where it says, Whoever shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. I don't have time to read everything in this chapter. It's just too much. But a little portion from this section says, By venturing to disregard the will of God upon one point, our first parents opened the floodgates of woe upon the world. And every individual who follows their example will reap a similar result. The love of God underlies every precept of his law, and he who departs from the commandments is working his own unhappiness and ruin. From Matthew 5, 20, it says, Except your righteousness shall be exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Speaking of the scribes and Pharisees, it says, In their endeavor to make themselves holy, they were trying to bring a clean thing out of an unclean. The law of God is as holy as he is holy, as perfect as he is perfect. It presents to men the righteousness of God. It is impossible for man of himself to keep this law. For the nature of man is depraved, deformed, and unholy, unlike the character of God. The works of a selfish heart are as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, as it says in Isaiah 64, 6. While the law is holy, the Jews could not attain righteousness by their own efforts to keep the law. The disciples of Christ must obtain righteousness of a different character from that of the Pharisees if they would ever enter the kingdom of heaven. God offered them, in his Son, the perfect righteousness of the law. If they would open their hearts fully to receive Christ, then the very life of God, his love, would dwell in them. Transforming them into his own likeness, and thus through God's free gift, they would possess the righteousness which the law requires. Jesus proceeded to show his hearers what it means to keep the commandments of God, that it is a reproduction in themselves of the character of Christ. For in him, God was daily made manifest before them. Going ahead a few verses, as I said, there's way too many verses to, to cover in one message here, but I'm going to cover a little bit here from Matthew 5, 29 and 30, where it talks about, if thy right hand causes thee to stumble, cut it off and cast it away from thee. God's purpose is not merely to deliver from the suffering that is the inevitable results of sin, but to save from sin itself. The soul, corrupted and deformed, is to be purified, transformed, that it may be clothed in the beauty of the Lord our God, conformed to the image of his Son. Eternity alone can reveal the glorious destiny to which man, restored to God's image, may attain. And in order for us to reach this high ideal, that which causes the soul to stumble must be sacrificed. It is through the will that sin retains its hold upon us. The surrender of the will is represented as plucking out the eye or cutting off of the hand. I want to pause there just for a moment. Because I have known people that thought they literally needed to pluck out their eye or castrate themselves or whatever else to try and reach righteousness. That is not what this is talking about. This is saying right here that the surrender of one's will is represented as plucking out the eye or cutting off your hand. It often seems to us to surrender the will to God is to consent to go through life maimed or crippled. But it is better, says Christ, for self to be maimed, wounded, or crippled, if thus you may enter into life. <clears throat> 
That which you look upon as a disaster is the door to the highest benefit. God is the fountain of life, the very source of life, and we can have life only as we are in communion with him. Separated from God, existence may be ours for only a very little time, but we do not possess life. Only through the surrender of our will to God is it possible for him to impart life to us. Only by receiving his life through self-surrender is it possible, said Christ, for these hidden sins which I have pointed out to be overcome. It is possible that you may bury them in your hearts and conceal them from human eyes, but how will you stand in the presence of God? If you cling to self, refusing to yield your will to God, you are choosing death. To sin wherever found, God is a consuming fire. If you choose sin and refuse to separate from it, the presence of God, which consumes sin, will consume you. You know, the book of Revelation is very symbolic, and when it comes to the the lake of fire at the end, where everything is cleansed, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I think it's possible that it means that God reveals his unchecked glory, and if you are clinging to sin, you will be consumed by his glory. And if that is the case, the goal is not to avoid the flames, the goal is to become fireproof in your character. It will require a sacrifice to give yourself to God, but it is a sacrifice of the lower for the higher, the earthly for the spiritual, the perishable for the internal. God does not design that we should that our will, I'm sorry, should be destroyed. For it is only through the exercise of the will that we can accomplish what he would have us to do. Rather, our will is to be yielded to him that we may receive it back again, purified and refined, and so linked in sympathy with the divine that he can pour through us the tides of his love and power. However bitter and painful this surrender may appear, it is not Really that way, it is profitable for thee. Matthew 5, 43 to 45, in the section where it talks about loving your enemies, says, Ye have heard that it hath been said that you shall love your neighbor and hate thine enemy, but I say unto you, love your enemies Bless those that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Such was the spirit of the law which the rabbis had misinterpreted as a cold and rigid code of exactions. They regarded themselves as better than other men and as entitled to the specific favor of God by virtue of their birth as Israelites. He pointed to his hearers, his hearers, to the ruler of the universe under 
the new name of Our Father. He would have them understand how tenderly the heart of God yearns over them. He teaches that God cares for every lost soul and that like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth those that fear him. Such a conception of God was never given to the world by any religion but of that of the Bible. Heathenism teaches men to look upon the supreme being as an object of fear rather than of love, a malign deity to be appeased by sacrifices rather than a father pouring upon his children the gift of his love. Even the people of Israel had become so blinded by the precious teachings of the prophets concerning God that this revelation of his paternal love was of an original subject, a new gift to the world. The Jews held that God loved them, or the Jews held that God loved those who served him. According to their view, those who fulfilled the requirements of the rabbis and that all the rest of the world lay under his frown and curse. But it is not so, said Jesus. The whole world, the evil and the good, um, lies in the sunshine of his love. The truth you should have learned from nature itself. God maketh his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sendeth the rain on the just and the unjust. It is not because of the inherent power that year by year the earth produces her bounties and continues her motion around the sun. It is the hand of God that guides the planets and keeps them in position in their orderly march through the heavens. It is through his power that summer and winter, seed time and harvest, day and night, follow each other in regular succession. It is by his word that the vegetation flourishes and that the leaves appear and that the flowers bloom. Every good thing that we have, every ray of sunshine and shower of rain, Every morsel of food, every moment of life is a gift of love. While we were yet unloving and unlovely in character, hateful and hating of one another, our Father had mercy on us. After that, the kindness and the love of God our Father towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Titus 3, 3 to 5. His love received will make us in like manner kind and tender, not merely towards those who please us, but to the most faulty and erring and sinful. The children of God are those who are partakers of his nature. It is not earthly rank, nor birth, nor nationality, nor religious privilege which proves that we are members of the family of God. Rather, it is love, a love that embraces all humanity, even sinners whose hearts, let me start again there, says even sinners whose hearts are not utterly closed to the Spirit of God will respond to kindness. While they may give hate for hate, they will also give love for love. But it is only the Spirit of God that gives love for hatred. To be kind to the unthankful and to the evil, to do good hoping for nothing in return, is the insignia of the royalty of heaven, the sure token by which the children of the highest reveal their highest state. In one last section, we'll close with this from the last verse of Matthew 5. 
Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The word therefore implies a conclusion, an inference from what has gone before. Jesus has been describing to his hearers the unfailing mercy and love of God, and he bids them, therefore, to be perfect. Because your Father is kind and unto the unthankful and evil, because he has stooped to lift you up, therefore, said Jesus, you may become like him in character and stand without fault in the presence of men and angels. I think from what she is saying here that inherent in what uh, Jesus is saying here, that we are to be perfect as the Father is perfect, he is saying that this isn't so much a command as it is a promise. That if we are in Christ and his spirit is dwelling in us, we will be perfect as the Father is perfect. The conditions of eternal life under grace are just what they were in Eden. Perfect righteousness, harmony with God, perfect conformity to the principles of his law. This standard is not one to which we can attain. In every command, every injunction that God gives, there is a promise. The most positive underlying the command. God has made provision that we may become like unto him. And he will accomplish this for all those who do not interpose a perverse will and thus frustrate his grace. Basically saying God is promising he will do this work in us if we don't get in the way and prevent him from doing it. Are we going to let him do it? With untold love, our God has loved us. And our love awakens towards him. And we comprehend something of the length and breadth and depth and height of this love that passes all knowledge. By the revelation of the attractive loveliness of Christ. By the knowledge of his express to us while we were yet sinners. The stubborn heart is melted and subdued. And the sinner is transformed and becomes a child of heaven. God does not employ compulsory measures. He does not coerce. Rather, love is the agent that he uses to expel sin from the heart. By it, he changes pride into humility and enmity and unbelief into love and faith. The Jews had been wearily toiling to reach perfection by their own efforts, and they had failed. Christ had already told them that their righteousness could never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he points out to them the character of righteousness of all who will enter heaven. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he describes its fruits. And now in one sentence, he points out its source and its nature. Be perfect as God is perfect. The law is but a transcript of the character of God. Behold in your heavenly Father a perfect manifestation of the principles which are the foundation of his government. God is love. Like rays of light from the sun, love and light and joy flow from him to all his creatures. It is his nature to give. His very life is the outflow of unselfish love. 
He tells us to be perfect as he is in the same manner. We are to be centers of light and blessing to our little circle, even as he is to the universe. We have nothing of ourselves, but the light of his love shines upon us, and we are to reflect its brightness. In his borrowed goodness, we may be perfect in our sphere, even as God is perfect in his. Jesus said, be perfect as your father is perfect. If you are the children of God, you are partakers of his nature, and you cannot but be like unto him. Every child lives by the life of his father. If you are God's children, begotten by his spirit, you live by the life of God. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2, 9. And the life of Jesus is made manifest in our mortal flesh, 2 Corinthians 4, 11. That life in you will produce the same character and manifest the same works as it did in him. Thus you will be in harmony with every precept of his law. For the law of the Lord is perfect. It's a well-known verse, Psalms 19.7. How does it end? Restoring the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul back to the image of God again that we once lost. That is God's prayer for us. That is his desire. He longs for us to let him actually live in us and be restored again to his image.